Have you ever wondered what it's like for other people to go through a life event? Is it the same for them? Is it different? And how? My name is Dr. Nikel Rogers-Wood. I'm a psychologist. I'm doing a podcast with my mom, Dr. Elsa Rogers, a retired dean of general studies. And we're going to be talking to different people about what it's like to go through a single life event at the same time. The year after treatment, I believe, is the most difficult season of the cancer experience because you've been told that you're safe as long as you're in treatment and you've had all these people to tell you what to do and how to think, to translate all your data for you. And then one day treatment ends and you have a lifetime to live with none of that. There's no action anymore. It's like yesterday I had cancer and I went to treatment and they did all these things and today apparently I'm good, but how do we know? Like we don't know. And you have to just start walking out life with this life of uncertainty because it takes, it can take up to a decade for you to know with certainty that you're clean, right? You're clean from cancer, but we can't, again, we can't live for a decade in fear. A decade of uncertainty is we have to accept that and be okay with that without living in a decade of fear. But that's, beyond my story. So, you know, it is quite a process. Amy can also speak to this. So I'm like, great, let's just do what we need to do. We'll get through this. I did my surgeries. I did my chemotherapy. I did my radiation. But then we get to that end of actually it was before my radiation we started had the i felt like the tone of the conversations were changing mm-hmm. um that there was more more conversation at that point about how i was at high risk for recurrence and i was like wait a minute you told me last year that i was prognostically a stage 1 right and that practitioner who is different than anyone else that i've already mentioned in this story she said but yeah, but you're still stage three. And so I I do, you have to have time to process all of this. It's a Mm -hmm. lot of information. It absolutely is an emotional evolution. Like reflecting, I can say I'm grateful for how cautious they're being. Um, But I, I think another kind of funny story is living in the state of Florida, I'm treated at the same place as Casey DeSantis, the first lady of the state of Florida. Well, when she had breast cancer, it's public knowledge. They did a big press release to announce that she was cancer free after her treatment. So here I am thinking, oh, I'm going to go into my next appointment and ask if I can say that I'm cancer free too. Did not go the way way I expected. It wasn't I can say that I am cancer-free right now, but mm-hmm. there was a lot of emphasis on those words right now. And it wasn't as optimistic, I guess, of a conversation as I was anticipating. And so uh, I definitely needed a day to just feel my feelings and like right. process that. My husband was with me. He could tell I was emotionally upset. He wasn't really understanding why. And I'm just like, I just, it wasn't, 
it just didn't, the conversation didn't meet the expectations I had going mm-hmm. in. Like I've done, yeah. I've done all this treatment. I've done everything everybody said. I've tried to have a positive um, attitude and, you know, this, I don't want to focus on my high risk of recurrence. I want to focus on right now. You know, I want to celebrate every milestone. And so I guess long story short, yes, I'm cancer free, but I don't really feel like others on like medically, Mm -hmm. they're not celebrating that. And I don't know how much of it is a risk of liability in case I do have a, a recurrence or I just think there should be more celebration after everything that I've been through in the last year. <laughs> well, and I mean, I think that that's yet another layer that, that people don't know about if they haven't themselves gone through cancer or been really close to someone who has, that they're, that these oncologists, in addition to trying to treat you right now, they're also looking at how aggressive is your kind of cancer what's your five-year life expectancy like that is like the big thing five-year expectancy what about 10 years and what's the risk of recurrence and so your your point i think is really good because i had never heard that until i started you know talking to you and then talking to malu also who is going through like a different cancer but in the middle of treatment and Mm -hmm. so something you've got a mental health background and so i i wonder for you it's kind of like saying you can't be happy until you know you'll never be anxious ever again, which right. And that's isn't. not going to happen. There's a term for it. Um, you know, I'm in a really, I'm grateful. Again, I try and focus on what to be grateful for. I have a very comprehensive medical team. And so I see a psychiatrist and she said, there is a term for this. I can't tell you what that term is right now. <laughs> I'm going to have to Google. <laughs> it's, it's literally Greek. Um, and it's, but it's about, it has, has to do with like a sword always being over your head. There's always that constant fear. I believe what Amy's referring to is the sword of Damocles. And this is a Greek fable that dates back to the fifth century BCE and has to do with Dionysus, who was the ruler of Syracuse. And he had done a lot of fighting with other nations and annexing nations. And so lots of people wanted his head. However, he lived really lavishly. Big house, throne, food, servants. And so one day this guy named Damocles came to court and was saying, oh my gosh, Dionysus, you live the best life. Things must be incredible for you. I wish I were you. And Dionysus was like, oh really? You want to be me? Okay, come on up here. You can be me. And Damocles was like, really? Yeah, sure, come on up. So you didn't have to ask Damocles twice. He got up there. He was sitting in the throne. Dionysus let him have all the food he wanted, people feeding him. It was cush. But at some point during all of this, Damocles looks up and realizes there is a sword hanging above his head and it's hanging by a single horsehair. Suddenly, all of that opulence, the servants, the food, all of it 
it wasn't so good anymore because his life was hanging in the balance. He was worried that this sword was going to fall on him at any moment. So he asked Dionysus, um, do I have to, do I have to stay? Can I just go back to my regular life? And Dionysus said, yeah, sure. You don't have to stay. So the story of the sword of Damocles really looks at the assumption that we tend to have that a really lavish lifestyle means that things are wonderful all the time. Uh, and the way that we tend to use it in regular conversation, though, is kind of like this discussion that we're having about cancer here after the first year of treatment, this fear that there's something hanging over our heads, uh, that something bad could happen, which very much impacts how we experience the day-to-day -day of life or whether or not we're actually able to enjoy our life. Nikkel, you know, but I'll share. I'm also working on my doctorate in public health. I was reviewing focus group research um, at the time of my diagnosis, um, breast cancer focus group research. And um, that it's just, I'm, I'm also blessed to know a lot of survivors. And so there was always a sense of optimism that I had a lot of examples that I could get to the other side of this. So I'm grateful for that too. But everybody, whether it's in research or people that I know, that's a common theme. Everybody's worried about what if it comes back at the end? Well, quote unquote, the end, you know, when I finished radiation, everybody, and I appreciate this, I don't want to minimize it. Everybody was ecstatic. You made it. You're finished. Well, I'm not done. Everybody thinks I'm done because I finished chemo and radiation, but I'm not done. I'm onboarding. Yeah. I have two more surgeries, at least in my future this year. I'm onboarding to three long-term medications. Um, one will still continue to make me immune compromised. And so just helping people who, again, I believe have positive intent, don't assume, like, I guess it's don't assume the person is done. And that also ties into where the individual is mentally and emotionally. So this got mom and me thinking about the role of uncertainty in our own lives. Living with ambiguity. Um, so what is that like for you when you don't know? It's one thing to maybe not know what the next episode of whatever you're watching on Netflix is that's kind of fun but are there instances where it's been higher stakes than that and you haven't known the outcome how, how has that experience been for you I, I i i can't think of a situation where i was living with ambiguity i'm sure i'm sure there is but i'll have to think about that for a while so have you ever had that experience I think it's funny because when I look back, I'm about to say, oh, in much smaller stakes ways. But at the time, it was very high stakes. Like, I remember talking with my husband recently and saying, do you have any idea how many hours of my life I devoted to wondering and worrying about if I was going to get married and who it was going to be? I spent hours really thinking about this, talking with my friends about this. 
because there was no way for me to know and it was such a worry. And then now, you know, we've been together for a really long time and I'm at the point where I joke with the kids about returning him to the daddy store when he annoys me. <laughs> so it's funny because that ambiguity was so uncomfortable. And now I look back and go, why couldn't I have just let it be? Because it, he, he was going to show up eventually. Yeah, yeah. It's also like applying to graduate school, even though that's much a much shorter timeline. Am I getting in? Where am I getting in? Yeah, yeah. I think I think when you think about ambiguity, I remember I had devoted a whole lot of my time because I worked while I went to graduate school. In fact, throughout my 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 um my career, I always had a full-time job and still attended school. But when I did my final, de- my, my, my terminal degree, I, to me, I had sacrificed more than I'd ever sacrificed. And I would stay up late. I remember actually dreaming and talking about the things that I studied in my mm. sleep. And, your, and um, your dad would say, oh, you were talking about this and that. And I would say, oh, yes, yes, that's, <laughs> that's what I read just before going to sleep. So I had devoted so much time doing that. And then I, I, I did the exam. And I remember some of my um, my classmates talking about the fact that no one passed or they heard that Ooh. this one failed. And, oh, it was not it was not a good time for me. It was not a good time because mm-hmm. it was, I had to wait and I had to wait. And, okay, what happens if I don't get through? Am I going to take that exam again? I couldn't think about getting through. But it was, what if I failed? What do I do? Yeah. And that was a rather ambiguous situation for me. Fortunately, I didn't have to retake the exam. That's good. Yeah. Um, well, I think... It's, it's interesting to me that you and I, when we think about ambiguity, it has kind of a, a nice little ending mm-hmm. and it's tied up with a bow. When our guests talk about the ambiguity that they now have to live with post-diagnosis, post-treatment, yes. that's a whole different thing because there's ambiguity all through, you know, between symptoms and then diagnosis and then between treatment and then that that follow-up scan to see how the treatment worked, there's that ambiguity as a survivor. Let's go back to our discussion of ambiguity with Lauren. I'm interested in something you said. You said you, you kind of kind of learn to deal with uncertainty. What kind of um I suppose what techniques have you learn to adapt in order to deal with that uncertainty? I really think it's this separation of fear from uncertainty, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's our, how we have been, we have been programmed. I was driving the other day and I was like, my children will never know what it feels like to get lost. Like never, I'm turning the neighborhood without being able to like pull up a phone and figure out, Oh, I should have turned left instead of right to go yeah. to the park. Like when we were younger, I, I drove across the country with no GPS. Like there was a map and like a little line and I took the right turns and I drove across the country. We as a society are moving away from processing uncertainty. And even 10 years ago, this was a very normal part of our life. 
We it's, could show up to the store and not know if they have your size pants. Like, like that was a thing. Now you like, should I go to Target today? No, they'll stock tomorrow. They don't have my size today. You know, like there is no uncertainty in life right now. It's a brand new experience for society, right? Yeah. But because of that, any uncertainty sets off all of these alarms that would not have happened 15 years ago. That's so interesting because I remember going to graduate school. Like I got one of those atlases from one of my, our family friends <laughs> and I had to use that, but Denton was too small to be on that map. And so <laughs> I would spend days just driving around and I got lost every day for a week. And, and it then was I, yeah. And then I knew the whole town because yeah. I got lost so many times. Yeah. And that was normal. There was no fear attached. It was just like, okay, well, if I get stuck, I'll stop and ask somebody, right? That doesn't exist anymore. And our children, it will never be an experience of their lifetime. So for our children, any uncertainty has this huge catastrophic like impact on their and their mentality, right? So I feel like in, in cancer, it's going to be more and more difficult to process the uncertainty that you have to live with. Um, but we have to separate that from the fear. We just have to do it. I, I don't know. I just, I love this because like when I used to do therapy with people, I was like, this is where you grow, where you don't know. And you just, you just are. And you're so, I didn't think about how technology has socialized us to not be lost or confused or anything at any point. You don't have the answer. Google it. Just pick up your phone. Point three seconds and you have all the answers you need, right? Yep. 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 That's profound because yeah, you're right. You're really right. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're so you asked about it like a technique, I think you just have to attach a different emotion to that feeling of uncertainty. And so for me, I call it irrational optimism. Honestly, like if I have to believe something, why would I believe the worst case scenario? <laughs> you know, I, if I feel uncertain, I literally just cover it and blanket it in irrational optimism. And I try to think about the very best scenario that could possibly come true. Right. Because I have a choice on how, what emotion is stirred up by uncertainty. And for the first three months after my stage four diagnosis, it was fear. It was not just fear, it was despair. There was, I had already done every treatment and nothing worked. I mean, it didn't work. And honestly, if I meet someone now who's been through every treatment and, and it didn't work and it comes back, I know their options are probably out because some cancers just don't respond to treatment. Right. But my, so I was pretty right in my assumption that if my cancer didn't respond to treatment. It wasn't going to respond to any, it was treatment resistant cancer. Um, but, but it didn't matter. I still had days or years. Right. And so I didn't want to waste them, but I just decided that when I feel uncertainty to not go down the, all the, all the bad things that might happen, right. To instead just wrap it up in this idea of like, anything is possible any, I, the, the best case scenario is just as likely as the worst case scenario. And I just have done that for everything ever since, because I have a choice on what I believe. Like I have a choice and, and maybe the good will come and maybe the bad will come, but at least I got to live a lot of happy, passionate, excited days between point A and point B. Next time, 
on at the same time. After everything that we've been through in the past two years, yeah. I don't want her to miss learning, but if you tell me that there's not as much learning, <laughs> uh, I would really love to spend this time with her. You know, I think in the past I would have been like, oh gosh, it's four days of school. There's no way. But right. I think now my perspective is like, this is four days where we could spend together that I know she's going to create a lot of memories that are going to be meaningful for her. I would rather spend that time there knowing that, you know, they're probably not learning some new way to do you know multiplication in the last week of school so i feel totally. like that totally. trade-off i look at a little bit differently now please join us for the next and last episode in season three of at the same time where our guests reflect on what they've learned in the process of going through cancer how they choose to live now and what the future holds if you enjoyed the show, please be sure to rate and subscribe to At The Same Time on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. That way, you won't miss a single episode. We'd love for you to connect with us online. Our website is sametimepod.fireside.fm. You can also send us an email. Our address is sametimepod at gmail.com. Thank you to our guests, Malu Panohu, Amy Artuzo, Sarah Haverstick, and Lauren Huffmaster. Episode written and produced by Dr. Nikel Rogers-Wood. Music by purpleplanet.com. Copyright 2022 by Nikel Rogers-Wood, PhD, and Elsa Rogers, PhD.